0: Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at TomKnowles.com slash Australia. Sahana <speaking in foreign language> vavatu, sahana vbhu naktu, sahaviryam karavavahai, tejasvi navatitamastu, navitvishavahai, Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. I'm Tom Knowles. Today I would like to spend some time talking about the subject of grieving. Grieving is a subject that there's been a tremendous amount written about. There's been a lot of discussion about, but also it's a subject that is somewhat buried. And it's important for us to understand it because each of us is going to go through it probably several times in our lives if we haven't already gone through it. If we don't understand it, then we fear it. One of the basic tenets of the Vedic worldview is that knowledge eliminates fear, and also knowledge eliminates confusion and bewilderment. So let's start off with some knowledge about this. First of all, I think it's important to say that what causes a stress response of any kind, and grieving is a stress response, Is the incapacity to adapt interactively with a change of expectation. Let me just take that sentence and break it down a little bit. The world presents us regularly with patterns of behavior and we naturally begin to build expectations. An expectation about how things are going to go along at a particular rate. Expectations sometimes are accurate, sometimes they're inaccurate. If we say, well, I couldn't see it coming, or I didn't see it coming, or no one would have seen it coming, these are statements about the consciousness state that we're in at a time when change presents itself. So change will present itself to us, and generally speaking, all change is a change of expectation. Changes of expectation are the ultimate stressors Stress needs to be understood as not something the world does to you, but a reaction that you have when a change of expectation occurs. So, for example, if you're sitting at home and it looks like a clear day, but there is a thunderclap that comes from a cloud that was building up and you didn't expect that sudden loud noise, then your body gets a shock and it takes a while for you to recover. Perhaps your heart rate elevates and so on. And so there was that sudden booming sound, and it's a change of expectation. When there are changes of expectation, then it causes us to have to bring our adaptation energy into interaction with that change. That is to say, we have at any given moment a propensity. We'll call it adaptation energy. I have at this juncture to credit one of my teachers, Professor Hans Sellier, a Canadian professor who had the dubious title of, quotes the father of stress, because Sellier was the first scientist to use the word stress as it is used in terms of the human physiology and the human condition. Prior to Sellier, the word stress was purely an engineering term to talk about pressures and load-bearing and so on and so forth in engineering elements. Adaptation energy is a phrase that Sellier used to explain the general adaptation syndrome, meaning the way in which we may, when presented with a change of expectation, we may at that moment have sufficient adaptation energy to meet the demand interactively, in which case we interact with the demand and we get some wave of satisfaction from interacting. Or the demand is either too great, or our adaptation energy is too low at that moment, and when a change of expectation occurs, we're not able to interact with the change, we don't have enough adaptation energy, so we end up reacting to it. Thus the words stress reaction, as opposed to an adaptive response. So adaptive responses are interactive, and stress reaction is reactive. Now, these are not things over which we have control at the moment of dealing with change. It's not like we can say, all right, all right, I'm going to respond adaptively here. These are raw elements of our physiology. Adaptation energy could be thought of as being made up of our Available creativity, our available intelligence in any given moment. And these are changeable phenomena. And our staying power, that is to say, our stamina. So after a good night's sleep, you might have a bit more adaptation energy than you would have if you had an all nighter and partied all night. So then, when a change of expectation comes, our brain, our body, has to respond to filling in the gap between what we expected and what actually happened, and we can either rise to the occasion and be adaptive and interactive with it, or we can fail to respond adaptively. When we have a maladaptive reaction, we have stress, and stress is then a reaction to the world. This is why it's possible to say that there are no such things as stressful situations, quotes, unquotes but there are only stressful responses, stressful reactions, to given situations. Someone who has a huge amount of adaptation energy and who perhaps is a little more perceptive than average might note that there is, as they sniff the air, a bit of a change in the ionic makeup of the air. Things are getting a little more humid. They can feel the beginnings of a storm, and when they hear the thunderclap, They were ready for it, and they have an adaptive reaction to it. Somebody else might be eating their scrambled eggs while reviewing their Instagrams, looking out the window that affords only a view of the clear blue part of the sky, and the thunderclap comes, and they had no idea that anything like that was going to happen, and 200 decibels of sound go crashing through the house that they live in and rattling the walls. And so their expectation was not that, it was anything but that. And it's going to make a bigger demand on their available adaptation energy. And so we have the capacity to become stressed by two factors. The raw pressure or degree of change that is presented by a stressor, that is to say the demand that says change your expectations now, And how much adaptation energy we have right at that moment. And we could add a third thing, which would be the ability to have raw perceptual capacity, acuteness of perception, would give us more accurate expectations. So accurate expectations, generally speaking, we have fewer stress reactions. Inaccurate expectations, and we have more stress reactions. So... Accuracy of expectation, that's going to have something to do with our perceptual capability, a fineness of perception, and also our intellectual discrimination. And then how much adaptation energy we have at a given moment. And then just the raw data of the magnitude of change that we're suddenly exposed to. So these three things go into the making of either at one end having a stress reaction to, at the other end, having an adaptive response where we interact with the change successfully. So now you know more than the average doctor knows about what stress actually is. When we get stressed, stress causes our brain to begin snapshotting all of the perceptual data, perceivable data, that is surrounding us at any time that we have a stress reaction. So, for example, if I'm looking down at my yellow scrambled eggs and have a stress reaction, then unbeknownst to me, my brain is memorizing the color yellow. It may be also memorizing and snapshotting the fragrance of the freshly scrambled eggs. Perhaps I've just had a swig of orange juice then, There's a faint trace of orange left in my mouth. My brain will also incorporate that. Perhaps I was listening to a Bach cantata on my speaker while I was having my breakfast when the thunderclap came. And the chord changes of that Bach cantata now have been imprinted within that stress reactivity. Perhaps there's a tactile sensation as well that we could add into this, which is how my hands feel Well, picking up the fork, all of the perceptual data within the perceptible range of the subject at the time of a stress reaction will be snapshotted by the brain and it will be assigned stress trigger status. And so then there are stress triggers that have nothing to do with the thing, in this case the thunderclap, have nothing to do with the thing that actually was the stressor. In fact, you might be laughing about the thunderclap three or four minutes later and how it surprised you and sharing the experience with other people and you normalize it psychologically. But unbeknownst to you, next time you see a color that is approximately the same as the scrambled eggs, then a little bit of stress reactivity will offer itself. The next time you smell that, a little stress reactivity will offer itself. The next time you taste oranges, the next time you hear the chord changes or something equivalent to it of the Bach cantata. And so then we can see that these are premature reactions to an overload of experience. And nonetheless, though they are premature, our brain is hedging its bets that some of these things may have had something to do with the feelings of stress reactivity. And as our life goes on and we have one stress reaction after another, as we continue to have greater and greater change in our life, then we accumulate and build up layer after layer of premature cognitive commitments. This is a scientific term that describes that a commitment that is premature to the meaning of, the stressful meaning of, or the danger meaning of, an otherwise innocent perception like yellow eggs or the taste of orange juice or whatever, We build up layers of these premature cognitive commitments, and they're stored in chemical form and electrochemically activated in the cells of our body, including our brain cells, but not limited to our brain cells. And so our body, over a period of time, starts to become a storehouse of stress triggers, things that we are triggered by when those things come around. Very, very small percentage of those probably less than 1% of all of those stress triggers that we have, we are conscious of. Most of our premature cognitive commitments, so let's call them PCCs, premature cognitive commitments, most of our PCCs are unconscious to us. We don't realize that we're being triggered. And so you might walk into a room sometime and... Think that, well, this is a room I've never been in before. I'm meeting people I've never met before. I'm going to sit down to a meal. I have no idea what it is. And so one might think I'm in a completely neutral mood. But the fact is, our neutrality is a fallacy. At every moment of our lives, seeing as we have accumulated perhaps hundreds of thousands of PCCs, that is stress triggers, we are already a bag of available reactivity, our body is like a big bag of available reactivity that is ready to react stressfully to defend you from something that you either need to fight or to flee from. And it looks like yellow, or it tastes like orange juice, or it sounds like a Bach cantata chord change. But again, intellectual access to this is not there. And so we have mild stress reactivity going on almost continuously, and particularly in environments such as we live now in the 21st century, where we accept as normal constant change in our lives, a constant change in what the social mores are. A more is a code of behavior that is implicit in the way that we live and work and move around with other people. The constant change in what is cool and what isn't cool, what the fashions are and what the fashions are not. And though we may feel as though we are immune to the idea of fashion, 10 years from now, when you look back at a photograph of what you looked like today at a dinner party, you're going to say, oh, that was so 2019. Look at the hairstyle. Look at the clothes. So we are, all of us, affected by all of these trends and everything's changing all the time. And so with constant change there is constant potential for stress reactivity. If our expectations are not accurate, then there's constant potential for stress reactivity. And as we accumulate stress triggers, those stress triggers require energy and fuel, adaptation energy fuel, to keep them alert to the world around us. And we end up actually burning up a lot of our available adaptation energy, our daily available supply of it, just maintaining the stress triggers, the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of stress triggers that we have. Consequently, each new presentation of a demand, something to which you can adapt, takes a lesser demand to cause you to have a new stress reaction. And this is why we see the current plague, the malaise of stress reactivity in the world today. General practitioners say that four out of five patients who come to see them in their offices are not suffering from something the doctor was trained to diagnose or treat. That is to say, people are overfatigued, too stressed, and the doctor basically has to tell them to go home, and if it gets any worse and turns into a disease that I can actually treat, then we can treat that. And very often, stress reactivity and stress accumulation does turn into disease. So then let's get back to grieving. Grieving means something happened usually, and we'll just use this as the most common form of this. Something happened to somebody that didn't meet my expectations, or perhaps I was expecting this to happen, but I was in denial of it. I didn't want to face the fact of it. Now, it should be certainly within our range of human experience to know that the death toll of human beings on Earth, the stage of our existence, is still 100%. That is to say, absolutely, everybody that you know is going to die. Absolutely everyone. If you die first, then you won't witness or have to grieve the death of others, but it's going to happen to everybody. If you manage to survive the deaths of many because you got lots of years and you had longevity, then you're going to experience many times in your life the loss of people who either passed unexpectedly into the unmanifest or who you expected it because they had some long-term illness and it wasn't a surprise. The extent to which it is a surprise that's the magnitude of stressor, the extent to which you have adaptation energy at the time of the surprise and the capacity that you have to meet that demand either interactively or reactively is going to determine the extent to which you are, quotes, unquote, grieving. So grieving really is And I say this with all compassion for it. I'm simply using scientific terminology here to help us understand it. Spoken with the greatest compassion for grieving. In fact, it's no different to a stress response, except that, generally speaking, it lasts longer. The characteristics of grieving are a lot of askance. Askance means something like, what happened and where does this leave me? In grieving, there are a number of different elements that come into play. I had been in the groove of dealing with people and loved ones as if they were going to be here forever. I behaved in a routine fashion with people. We had a regular interplay. Everybody's certainly aware, with greater or lesser degrees of acuteness, that ultimately all of this is going to have to come to an end. Nobody lasts forever and no social Interactive situation lasts forever, irrespective of the comments that we make. Say, for example, at a wedding ceremony when we say, love forever and ever and ever. Some old parsons in the old days would add to that, until death do us part. At least there's that little bit of expectation added into this thing. But the idea that this is all going to go on forever and ever and ever is, in fact, the building of inaccurate expectation. And inaccurate expectation is one of those elements that causes surprise when reality hits. And surprise, if happening at a time of low adaptation energy, causes a magnitude of stress reactivity. In grief, we have to confront one simple and basic truth. We often say, or people will often say, I'm grieving for someone my father, my mother, my brother, my sister, my child, or my best friend, or my lover, or even someone you don't know. Around 1962, the collective grieving on both sides of the political aisle for John F. Kennedy when he was assassinated was palpable in the United States psyche, and you could also make an argument that it was palpable worldwide. Someone that most people had never met, but the loss was tangible. And so then, I'm grieving for so-and-so, somebody who is now, quote unquote gone. And then, what does the Vedic worldview bring into all of this? Well, first of all, it starts with, let's be honest, that when grief is occurring, we are grieving for ourselves. We're grieving for our loss of accessibility to the person that we loved. It's our own loss that we're grieving about. It is not, in fact, I'm grieving for somebody who's having a dreadful experience. Because we don't know what kind of experience the person's having. Depending on our belief system, we may have a belief that they're experiencing something lovely. Or we might have a belief that they're experiencing nothing. Perhaps they just vanish. Consciousness simply vanishes when body dies. Might be our worldview. Irrespective of either of those two things, we're grieving for ourselves because we can't have a shared experience anymore with this person. So we're grieving the loss of shared experience. Shared experience was being had to some extent. In the case of a celebrated, say, president like JFK, there was, in a sense, a kind of shared experience because of the news media covering everything in such great daily detail. But in the case of someone with whom you have regular personal contact and interaction, the loss of the ability to continue having shared experience. And then there's a vacuum left inside one's life. Sometimes during grieving, We might become a little angry with whoever it is that departed, but we feel terribly guilty about feeling angry over someone having vanished from view and vanished from contact. And so this might add to our internal conflict over our feelings of loss that we might faintly recognize that we're slightly angry with whoever it is that left. Why did they leave me behind? How can I go forward, and why am I not having a shared experience anymore? How do I replace this? And then the word replacement starts to become anathema because nobody can really be replaced. How do I succeed this? And then the idea of having to find succession to bring about some kind of modicum of similarity of experience that we were comfortable with is missing. We might also feel that there were things that we wanted to say, there were experiences we wanted to have, there were truths that we wanted to unveil, there were apologies that we wanted to make, there was unfinished business that we weren't able to finish, and we feel deeply saddened that we can't finish the unfinished business, so we think. So we're left with the whole subject of grieving, and generally speaking, when people are in the depths of grieving, they are left out of action for some period of time. and The spectrum of talents, their contribution to the group efforts of the social structure is truncated, that is, a gap appears, and they're not able to continue making their regular breadth or spectrum of contributions to the world that otherwise they would have been making regularly. No matter how narrow someone's gifts and contributions to the social order and the social world, no matter how narrow someone's capacity to give, were. They're even further foreshortened during a period of grieving. Grieving is something which, from the Vedic perspective, needs to be recognized for what it is. That is, that this is about the self inside not being able to justify, to rationalize, or to adjust expectations, the pain of the regret of not having earlier brought unfinished business to a conclusion, and the raw feelings of missing certain experiences, certain fragrances, certain sensations that had become an assumed regular part of daily life. One is confronted with the extent to which we may have taken for granted that these experiences would always be there, an inaccurate expectation. And so then we might start having regret over our inaccurate expectations about just how long all of this was going to go on for. Grief is a state about which, even though people want to come to a grieving person and relieve them of their grief, nobody can do anything For someone who's grieving, only the grieving person can actually bring about change in their own life. Perhaps knowledge, if the person has an interest in knowledge, if a person is interested enough in coming out of their grief, that is to say, they can recognize the way in which the value of their own life is being depreciated greatly by the length of time for which they're grieving and the depth or magnitude of the grieving. They may begin to seek knowledge and the seeking of knowledge may turn that event of loss into an opportunity for gaining some insight and perhaps even wisdom about these processes and turn someone into a person who can be relied upon by other members of society as someone who knows how to go through this process, this essential process of grieving, and it is essential, but to go through it with greater speed than would otherwise happen. So, grieving is something that is always going to happen. It's part of the human condition. It's made up of inaccurate expectations. It's made up of low adaptation energy at the time. We didn't expect the thing to happen, and we had low adaptation energy when it happened. It's made up of the sheer magnitude of the circumstances of the change. Those three things come into it. Now, we advocate the daily practice of Vedic meditation. During the practice of Vedic meditation, the mind is trained happily to leave its attachment to regular daily sensory experiences, not permanently, just for 20 minutes. You sit in a chair, you have a specific sound that you use to moderate as the medium of experience, we refer to these as the Bija mantra. Bija means seed. Mantra means man, Sanskrit for mind. Tra, Sanskrit for vehicle, a mind vehicle. The mantras that we use in Vedic meditation, as most of you know, have no intended meaning. It's important to state at this juncture that you could take any sound that's able to be made by the human voice box and find that some language somewhere, some culture somewhere has attributed a meaning to that set of syllables that emerge from the mouth. It's not that somebody couldn't find meaning for a mantra that we use in Vedic meditation. It's just that the mantras do not work on that level of meaning. So one is sitting innocently, effortlessly, with eyes closed, comfortably in a chair, entertaining, effortless repetitions of the mantra. And the mantra begins to take on, as it becomes subtler and fainter and quieter, which is its want, that is its nature, its specific property, its most desired property, is that as you think the mantra effortlessly in a repetitive fashion, then spontaneously it becomes fainter and quieter and softer. The mantra is chosen by a teacher to be quote-unquote resonant, with the thinker of it. There are multiple mantras that could be chosen and teachers are trained in a variety of diagnostic techniques to be able to assign a specific mantra to a student. For different people, different mantras work best. And so one is sitting quietly meditating and the first thing you begin to notice as successful meditation is occurring is that you begin to forget to repeat the mantra. And the instructor has given a very clear instruction that if you feel yourself forgetting, you're beginning to succeed. Interesting because this is the opposite of what all of our indoctrination from the time we're tiny little children has told us. If you feel yourself forgetting, says the indoctrination, be alarmed. If you forget, then how are you ever going to have organizing power? You have to hold on to knowledge, you have to focus, you have to exclude other things that are not relevant, and you have to stay with your attention riveted to certain subject matters that you want to elevate, that you want to extend. And so exclusive thinking, focus, is the advocacy of the entire indoctrination of our education process. And then comes Vedic meditation, which says, we're going to teach you how to allow yourself innocently, effortlessly, to stay conscious, sitting in a chair with eyes closed, while allowing yourself to forget all that is normally dear to you. And so what's dear to you? Well, the room is dear to me. I need to know where I am. My body is dear to me. I treasure my body because I think I am my body. That's an erroneous assumption, by the way. All my loved ones, they're also dear to me. The interesting thing is that The moment the mind has even the slightest little taste of the charm of the deep inner quality of the subtler states of thinking, the mind easily and very readily lets go of all of that that surrounds one. Generally speaking, you'd look at that and say, uh oh, I don't want that. But during meditation, it serves a very distinct purpose because we think far too much. We rely upon the world far too much. What this does is it causes us to lose our deep inner sense of stable self. When we lose our deep inner sense of stable self, we lose the capacity to be adaptive. We rely upon the world constantly to reassure us, to give us an idea of status, to give us an idea of who we are and what we are. And when we are meditating, we let go of all of that and the mind is drawn to the greater charm because the mind's natural tendency is always to move toward greater happiness. All it needs to do is locate where the greater happiness is and the charm of those deep inner subtle more abstract states and beyond that the bliss, the supreme inner contentedness of pure being to step beyond thought completely where consciousness simply sits in a self-referral state and revels in enjoying consciousness being conscious without having to think about the fact that it's conscious. This moment of transcendence draws one inward, and on the way, many charming experiences occur, which cause you during meditation to forget about your body. One of the first reactions that people may have during meditation is, I can't feel my hands. I know they're down there somewhere. I don't want to open my eyes and have a look and verify where they are, but I can't remember if I left my hands sitting folded in my lap, or on the sides of my legs or somewhere else. You start to get a sense of losing body sensations. And this is the mind letting go of its attachment, rigid attachment, to I am the body. The mind is beginning to experience liberation from that. And then all of those things that are so dear to you, your Instagram feed, or the number of likes you had on Facebook, or the stuff that you have to do, or the problems that you have that normally you worship your problems. If worship is seen as a dedicated and devoted thinking about something, a subject, over and over and over again, that level of devotion could also be attributed to the way that we appear to be devoted to the unresolved issues in our lives, our problems. Those also begin to disappear. You start to forget about all the things that are dear to you, all the people that are dear to you, the body, the environment, the mind happily goes into those deep inner quiet states and touches on that supreme inner contentedness of being. Coming out of the 20 minutes of meditation, the mind had been liberated to have that free-flowing, effortless flowing toward the greatest happiness, and it's saturated with happiness. That happiness continues to saturate the mind as we emerge from meditation into activity. And this is a self-referral happiness. It's a baseline happiness. It's the kind of happiness that is not dependent upon things happening in the world or people doing things or people not doing things or the world lining up circumstances for us. It is happiness on the basis of being alone. And that mind, filled and saturated with that kind of happiness, is no longer convinced as much that all of my happiness lies in others, in the behaviors of others. And as we grow in this experience, one starts to become less and less rigidly attached to the proposition that if others are here, or they behave this way, or they behave that way, or in ways that I expect, or if the surprises they present me are all pleasant surprises that suit me, then only I'll be happy. One starts to realize that my happiness, my inner happiness is intrinsic to my inner nature. And that intrinsic happiness from inside removes the need to expect others constantly to generate happiness for you. Instead of having to import happiness from the outside world because of you have this little thrill or that little thrill or that sensation or this sensation or this taste or this flavor or this look or that look or this fragrance or this movie or this play or somebody who smiles at me on cue and I want them to smile at me and so on. Instead of living a life in slavery to the relative world in all of its changeability, one's happiness starts to become intrinsic to one's inner nature. And this is through regular twice a day practice of Vedic meditation. Into this, even for a meditator, will come the surprise or perhaps the expected death of another. And death could be, and please don't giggle because this is very serious to people who are pet lovers, it could be the death of a pet. It could be the death of another human. It could be the death of a career. You've retired the end of that particular career. It could be the loss of a job. It could be the loss of Someone very close to you, it could be any kind of loss, something that you had relied upon to continue being there with varying degrees of expecting it to happen, but hardly believing that it's actually happened now. Or a total surprise the change just simply occurred without you perceiving it's coming at all. And then magnitude of stressor, magnitude of change, available levels of adaptation energy at the time meeting with how much did you expect or not expect, then your level of grief or stress will be exactly according to those variables. In a meditator, grief tends to be less, less of an impact, and grief also tends to be short-lived. Meditators have the capacity, if they become stressed, to bounce back from a stress reaction very quickly. The basic idea about stress is that there's nothing all that bad about becoming stressed. Becoming stressed, after all, is part of our human survival mechanism. If our ancestors didn't go into what's properly called, stress is properly called the fight-or-flight reaction, if our ancestors didn't go into fight-flight reaction when, say, confronted with a saber-toothed tiger and either successfully fight the tiger or flee from it, they wouldn't have lived to reproductive age and done enough reproducing to create us thousands of generations later. Stress reactivity on its own is not a bad thing. It's simply a survival mechanism that gives us an advantage if in fact we're facing a life-threatening situation. But because of the way that we accumulate stress and we accumulate stress triggers, those premature cognitive commitments, those PCCs, the way that we accumulate this we carry with us the impression of having become stressed once. And it's that impression that causes continuous irrelevant stress reactivity. And irrelevant stress reactivity has a killing effect on us. It decreases our longevity. It interrupts our immune status. It weakens the body in every way because we're getting small or large stress reactions in situations that do not warrant Fighting or fleeing. As meditators, we are eliminating the backdrop of deeply rooted stresses. One of the outcomes of meditation is that as the mind goes into those inner quiet states, the body begins to rest at levels of depth that are unprecedented. Studies have shown that during meditation, the body can rest many times more deeply than it is able to rest at any point in a night's sleep. And so, as the body is resting deeply, the body is able to release and relieve the irrelevant stress reactivity that it has accumulated. And as this happens, there is a growth in the amount of adaptation energy that one has. As we release accumulated stress from the body during the deep restfulness of meditation, then the available adaptation energy grows and grows and grows. And that gives us and affords us the opportunity to be far more adaptive in the face of any new change of expectation than we had been before. We start to become more and more interactive people. Interactive meaning fighting and fleeing less. Fleeing may not mean literally turning and running. It might be simply withdrawing or becoming aloof or moving in the direction of being catatonic. Catatonia is utter and total withdrawal from any interaction with anybody. It's a psychotic state, but it's the ultimate form of fleeing. Fighting might include aggressive behaviors or assertive behaviors or masked aggression, what's commonly called passive aggression, where basically sending out the message, don't mess with me, I can fight. And so grieving then starts to have less and less of an impact. A few things here. One is... As our perceptual capacity grows and grows with daily practice of Vedic meditation, twice daily practice, preferably, we like people to practice it in the morning and sometime late afternoon or early evening to get the full impact of it. As meditation effect starts to become more and more entrenched in the individual, then their perceptual acuity also has grown measurably. People begin to notice that they have the capacity to smell, taste, touch, hear and see at levels of subtlety that were not available to their senses earlier than that. Meditation gives you the capacity to sense change in the air. When change is occurring at all times and change is occurring at all times, the character of change starts to be detectable. And this gives one a little bit of lead time. It's not that as a meditator you become, quote-unquote, psychic. You start to simply become very, very perceptive. And someone who has super acute perception and has the capacity to assess and pay attention to and appraise the nature of change that's going on, they have fewer surprises. Surprises are less. When surprises are less than the magnitude of change that's presented by the world, becomes less. One didn't get surprised by it. One was able to adjust one's expectations in advance. This is what lead time gives us. So greater and more acute perceptual capability of the meditator, more adaptation energy, growing and growing and growing on a daily basis. And then with that change of perceptual capability, the failure to become as easily surprised by the world as one was before, magnitude of stress or event becomes lessened because of that, capacity to be interactive with change. And what all of this yields in the process of grieving is rapid capacity to adjust and to return to normal. One of the things that might disturb even a meditator is the fact that this rapid capacity to adjust to reality, the rapid capacity to make oneself relevant to the world again after an event that normally would be grieved deeply for a long time, that this places you in a limelight of people looking at you and saying, why aren't you devastated and why aren't you devastated for a long time by this? In other words, there can be a little bit of subtle or even overt social shaming of someone who is not seen as grieving enough or grieving deeply enough. And people love to use words that comfort them when describing somebody who they think isn't grieving enough, deeply enough, or for long enough. And one of the favorite social words for this is quotes unquote denial. Oh, you're in denial because nobody could come through that experience with the apparent ease with which you came through it. And so since I can't do that, unlike you, I would be stuck in the deep grieving process for a long time. Therefore, my only way of defending myself is to say, you're in denial. And so meditators sometimes have to wear that. And denying denial is not really a very effective approach to these things generally speaking as we are progressing through life we have to acknowledge that we cannot stop people from behaving according to their level of consciousness someone's state of consciousness absolutely is determining of what actions what speech what behaviors they're able to come up with and so part of the ever increasing perceptual capability and more and more accurate expectations a meditator doesn't expect someone who isn't experiencing what the meditator is experiencing, to suddenly understand and be able to behave in a way that's the same as the meditator. You don't expect people to be able to behave in any way other than what their state of consciousness dictates. And so it's okay if people say things. One just has to get on with life anyway. And so then rising above grieving is dealt with in these ways, diving into it and rising above it, letting it perform the function that it is performing, which is basically adjustment adaptation. And now we're going to bring in an entirely new concept. And this is a concept that we can't really talk about yet in pure scientific terms, although the day is rapidly approaching. The catalog of hundreds of thousands of experiences had by people who had what is normally called NDE, NDE, quotes unquote stands for near-death experiences. Properly, a near-death experience is a death experience. It's an experience that people have had after they have been pronounced medically dead. And there are hundreds of thousands of people to date who have cataloged their subjective experiences about what happened when they were in any kind of situation where a doctor who was qualified to do so, noted that their brain waves had flattened, zero brainwave activity, their heart rate had stopped and respiration, had stopped these three things, or the trifecta of being able to declare somebody to be dead. Death was declared and certified and documented, but the patient continued experiencing and then came back to life, came back into their body and recovered from death, and then had a tale to tell about what they experienced in the interim. When we look at these experiences on the whole, and there are catalogs of these experiences that you can look up and read subjective experiences, and let's be clear that one doesn't qualify for a near-death experience without the pronouncement of death by a medical practitioner. There are sometimes people who say, I had a near-death experience when I was on ayahuasca down there in Peru or on the Amazon, and so now I know what a near-death experience is like. That's okay, but without it having objective third-party verification, a near-death experience can't really be called that for the purposes of this argument. So then we see a pattern that emerges in these so-called near-death experiences, and the pattern is always one of a person who has quotes unquote died experiencing their body. They see their body separate from them. Usually they are above the body or at a distance from it. If there are other people around, they see people gathering around this body and attempting to revive it. And they have this feeling of, I am not that. That's not me. I'm here. And then they feel a calling. Sometimes this is experienced, and most frequently it's experienced as some kind of variation of light. They begin moving in the direction of that light. Sometimes the features of the consciousness state therein cause it to be modeled by the mind. We can't talk about the brain now because the brain's down there dead, but the mind models it as a tunnel. And going down this tunnel, one starts to discover greater and greater delights, very often meeting acquaintances or meeting other beings or people that are lovely and being shown around various kinds of experiences and so on. And in general, while in Earth time, a very few minutes are going by, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, I believe that the world record is 18 minutes. I'll need to be fact-checked on that, but it's certainly somewhere right up there. The experiencer feels as though timelessness has occurred, and there is a time-free zone. Now, this is somebody who has, quotes-unquotes, died, and yet they're experiencing, and experiencing something really delightful. Then, because the dying, that is to say permanent separation from the body, of consciousness from the body, is premature, some kind of authoritative structure, it might be a voice, it might be a feeling, it might be a mind, informs or communicates with the supposedly dead person, this isn't your time, you have to go back. And they find their way back into their body with quite a bit of regret, because it was lovely what they were experiencing. It wasn't dreadful. It wasn't hellish. In fact, it's a little bit hellish getting back into the broken body. Presumably something had happened to the body that caused the body to die. And generally speaking, that's not something that bears with it lots of lovely sensations. There's probably body sensations that are extreme. And the experiencer, the consciousness, goes back into the body and then has a tale to tell about what they just experienced while everyone around them is marveling that we thought we'd lost you. You are actually pronounced dead, and now here you are back again, living and breathing. That person knows, though, something that those others don't know, that whatever it was they were experiencing was not something over which anyone who's not experiencing it should grieve. They're not experiencing dreadful things. They're experiencing lovely things. We talked earlier in this discussion about how we grieve for a loss of shared experience. There's a loss of shared experience, and so I don't know what my loved one is experiencing anymore. I know what I'm experiencing, and that is loss of regular contact and familiarity and the damnable feeling of there was unfinished business that I really should have or could have or I wish I had brought to a conclusion. All of that's going on. But in fact, in the process of grieving, one is so self-centered. Excuse me for saying it that way, but that's what it is. It's an enforced self-centered experience. It's all about how I'm feeling. There is, generally speaking, very little regard for what is the experience of the one who I loved, the so-called dead one, the one who supposedly died. And the point I'm making here is that people who die don't experience themselves as being dead. There's something that's left. The mortal coil has been shuffled off the body, and there is a continuation of experience. Meanwhile, back at home, there's no discussion or very little or thought going into what is so and so experiencing right now. When we don't have the ability to ask what's so-and-so experiencing right now, all we are left with is they're not here. They're not here. I don't know why. The timing is bad. Timing's never good, by the way. The timing is bad. Unfinished business. I don't have familiar experiences. I'm at a loss. And my whole life has just got this great big hole in it and a gap. And I feel dead to the world while this is going on. So part of the growth of consciousness is the growth of that ability actually to ask the question, what is the so-called dead person? I put dead in quotes here because death is unreal. If death means cessation, then certainly people who've had near-death experiences do not report cessation. So what is it that dies? It's not just who dies, it's what dies. Bodies die. A body dies, consciousness continues. And since consciousness continues, and since there are reliable reports by the hundreds of thousands from people who didn't succeed at dying, they nearly died and then returned, we can really pretty much assume that the consciousness of someone who supposedly has died actually is not anything worth grieving over. And what does that do? it curves our attention right back onto ourselves. It curves our attention right back onto who's grieving about what. What is the actual process through which I'm going? It's a process of self-referral. I'm self-referring. I haven't figured it out yet. I don't know what to do. There are irreplaceable experiences. I don't know how to deal with them. But one thing that we can add to all of this that could be a comfort and could be a bit of a soothing stroke in all of this, is the certainty brought to us by all ancient traditions and also direct experience reported by people who've had near-death experiences that our loved one is not suffering. We're suffering. The griever is suffering. The one who supposedly died isn't suffering. And we need to arrive at that conclusion in a way that meets our level of intellectual discrimination about things. This will also assist us in the process of continuing to favor change in a progressive, expansive element of change, rather than having our attention about change be eaten up in the deteriorating, disintegrating, loss of relevance to the social world, and roiling around in grief of deep magnitudes, question marks, resentment, anger, and so on, that accompany all of this for longer than what is helpful. It is incumbent on us, therefore, to be adaptive human beings. I'm not saying don't grieve. I'm saying speed it up. Let's get this done and get it behind us, Let's realize for whom we're grieving. Let's learn how to let go. And greatly aiding all of this process, and I would say pivotal to its success, would be the regular daily practice of Vedic meditation, to experience that same inner transcendent field, which is not only your source, but is the source of all others whom you love. Thank you very much for listening. Guru Gurudev.